0: So thankful to be with you this morning. I want to continue some of the thoughts that we were sharing in the earlier service regarding the gift of the ministry of the word expressed uh, by the Holy Spirit in the Ephesian letter as he quotes the Old Testament passage uh, when he, that he hath ascended and led captivity captive. And gave gifts unto men. And then the Spirit describes those gifts as the gifts of the ministry, the teaching ministry of the apostles, of the prophets, of evangelists, and then of pastors and teachers. And it occurs to me that we often, when we think about the gospel record, the narrative of Christ and his ministry, we overlook the significance of the teaching of God's word that was done. And it was done in a community, a culture, a nation where God had been significantly silent for over 400 years. He hadn't sent them any prophets. He hadn't spoken in the way he had in times past through his prophets speaking to the people. And they had his word, but they had abused his word. They hadn't used it properly. They hadn't studied the word to find understanding, but rather to establish a control over the people through the priesthood and the ministry of the law and there had been no real teaching no real instruction in Israel up until that time and then John the Baptist came on the scene and he came preaching repent the kingdom of heaven is at hand but he came teaching the word of God the message he was preaching was a message that was rooted in the prophecy of scripture that said the king is coming and make way a highway for the king the Savior is coming, Christ is coming, this is Christ the Lord. And he was preaching this word from the Old Testament Scripture. He was preaching the Word of God. And then we focus on the miracles of the Lord and the messages the Savior Himself delivered. And a lot of times in our minds, I think, we isolate the ministry of Christ to those few things that are actually recorded in the Word. But there were three and a half years that Jesus was continually daily teaching. And he was saying a lot of the same things over and over again. But not only was Jesus teaching and preaching, but we have accounts in the gospel, like in John's gospel, where John the Baptist's disciples realized that Jesus' disciples had converted, had preached to, and had baptized more than John and his disciples. So there was work going on and there was teaching and preaching going on. And then we have the accounts of Jesus sending forth first his twelve disciples and later seventy to go and to preach the word. So I want us to think about that first this morning. So we uh, just as a place to start, we find Jesus in the eleventh chapter of Matthew's gospel uh, being uh, approached by the disciples of John the Baptist who was in prison, who said, "We come on behalf of John and we have this question for you. The question is, are you the one that should come, or do we look for another?" And Jesus gives the answer. We're all familiar with it. Go tell John, uh, the things which he do hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached unto them. It's interesting. He, escalates the miracles, the level of miracles, as he goes through these miracles. But the final one that he says, the one of highest order or significance is, the poor have the gospel preached unto them. Jesus placed the preaching of the gospel pretty high on the list. And blessed is he who, whosoever shall not be offended in me. So when they departed, Jesus began to speak concerning John the Baptist. And what he had to say was this. He said, What went ye out for to see? Did you go looking for a prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you will receive it, this is Elias, which was for to come. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. In Luke's account of this same statement, Jesus says, The law and the prophets were until John, and since that time the kingdom of heaven is preached. So John is the last of the Old Testament prophets and the first of the New Testament preachers. He's a transitional character. And Jesus says he is the greatest gift God has given to this day. But the least in the kingdom of heaven is going to be found greater than he. Why? Because the word of God is going to be accessible. It's going to be living. It's going to be active in him. Now, going back a couple of chapters in Matthew chapter nine, as Jesus was teaching and preaching and performing miracles, we close out the chapter. He saw the multitudes there that to hear him speak. They're here to receive his word, here to be healed by his power. And in verse 36, but he, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then said he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. A couple of things to note here about this statement. First of all, Jesus saw multitudes and he was moved with compassion. And remember, Jesus Christ, though he is God, is moved with compassion. And sometimes we get our wires crossed thinking about God. Because we understand that God is without passions, that is God is not moved to do differently because of what men do or say. God's mind doesn't change as a result of external force. God is a God without passions, that's true. But that doesn't mean he's a God who doesn't care. And he's explicit about this in the Hebrew letter when he describes the priesthood of Christ. And he says, we don't have a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Jesus Christ feels our pain. And this is exhibited in the gospel in such instances as when Lazarus is dead. And Jesus comes there to the grave and he sees the sorrow of his brethren, of the sisters. And though he knows he's about to raise Lazarus from the tomb, we have that shortest verse in the Bible that says, Jesus wept. And that's something beyond our comprehension. We can't understand it. Jesus knew all things. He knew that death was not the end. He knew that Lazarus was safe and secure in his blood. He knew that Lazarus was his child. And he knew Lazarus was coming out of the grave. And yet in all of that, Jesus wept. Well, here Jesus is moved with compassion because he sees the multitudes. What was the compassion for? Well, he tells us because they fainted. And we're scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. The scripture is uniform in using this analogy of sheep to describe the people of God. He uses it for Old Testament Israel. He uses it for us today. We are the sheep on his pasture. And what are sheep? Well, they're dumb animals that need to be kept alive by care of someone else. They're not able to take care of themselves. They invariably will die if they are not cared for. And they need a shepherd. Sheep need a shepherd. And who is the shepherd? Well, you turn to the book of Ezekiel and God says, I gave you shepherds and they fed themselves on the flock rather than feeding the flock. There's such a thing as bad shepherds. We all need shepherds, but we need good shepherds. Who is the good shepherd? Jesus Christ is the good shepherd of the sheep. He tells us in John chapter 10. But Jesus Christ here is moved with compassion because they were faint. They fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. This is Jesus' words to his disciples. He's telling them to pray that the Lord would send forth laborers into his harvest because the fields are white. And this is in response to his compassion, because the people are scattered as shepherd as sheep without a shepherd. Chapter 10 then begins When he had called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. He names the twelve and then it says these twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them And gave them commands about where to go and how to go there. How to preach the gospel. How to teach and how to know if they were being directed and led of the Spirit of God in doing so. He gave them the command to go and do what you've seen me do and teach the things that you've heard me teach. Which is no different than what we read this morning in that Great Commission verse where he says, "What? Go to all the world and preach the gospel and teach men everything that you've heard me teach. You teach them the things you've heard of me. Well, that's what he tells them here. Then we turn to Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 10. And it begins, After these things the Lord appointed other seventy also, and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place, whither he himself would come. Therefore saith unto he unto them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth laborers into his harvest, Go on your ways. Behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. And he tells them to trust in him for direction, for peace, for guidance. Essentially the same message. The laborers are needed. Pray that the Lord would send laborers into his harvest. The same message in John chapter 3. as uh, Or chapter 4, rather, sorry. In John chapter 4, as... Jesus speaks to his disciples having come back from Samaria with meat. And Jesus says, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Say ye not there yet four months and then cometh harvest? Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. And he that reapeth receive wages and gathereth fruit unto life eternal, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. Herein is that saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. I sent you to reap that whereon ye bestowed no labor. Other men labored, and ye are entered into their labors. Here Jesus is drawing an interesting contrast and and telling an interesting story, but he says the, the harvest is white, the fields are ready, it's time to harvest. And he says that God is the one doing the work. And he draws a connection here. He draws a connection here between the ministry of the word and the church of Jesus Christ. He draws a connection between the work of the ministry in the the times before his coming and this day. So note what he says. He says, first of all, lift up your eyes and look. Look on the fields. They're white already to harvest. The labor for you to do is not to go and plant the seed. The labor for you is to go and reap the harvest. Why? Because the seed is at work. It's been planted. The Holy Spirit is at work and there are people who are ready to hear. And ready to receive and ready to rejoice in the gospel. And there's others who have spoken the word. The prophets that came before you. The ministry has already begun. And then he says, he that reapeth receiveth wages. He says, I'm calling you to reap the harvest. And you're going to receive a blessing. You're going to receive wages. Gathering fruit into life eternal. That both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. You're going to be able to rejoice together with those that came before. This makes me think of uh, the text there in uh, in uh Hebrews chapter uh, 11. Where he closes this chapter talking about the faith of the Old Testament saints. And he says they did not receive the promise that they without us should not be made perfect or complete. Here he says... You may rejoice together, those who have sown and those that reap may rejoice together. Herein is that saying true, one soweth, another reapeth. I sent you to reap that whereon ye bestowed no labor. These are the ones that he sent forth. These twelve that were sent out to preach. And what does he say? I sent you to reap that which you bestowed no labor upon. The ministry of the gospel never gets to take credit for anyone who comes to Christ under their ministry never gets to say that's my work that's what I did why because we're reaping that upon which we bestowed no labor in fact the labor that we do is not ours anyway it's given to us so Jesus is is describing this dynamic and showing them you're not you're not giving up anything in the ministry of the word but rather you're gaining a reward you're reaping from it you're gaining a benefit from it Jesus Christ sent forth the twelve, and then the seventy, as Luke records. He sent these forth as ministers, so what I want us to understand is, even in the days when Jesus Christ was involved in his personal ministry, there was a focus on the preached word of the gospel, and he was giving these gifts of ministry in the church. And Jesus was sending forth these men to preach and to establish a base of faith within a community before Jesus Christ himself would come and reveal himself in person. And the laborers were few because the fields were white and there was a great multitude, a great number of people. And they weren't all going to be touched. They weren't all going to be reached by Jesus' personal ministry. There in John chapter 10 where he describes himself as the good shepherd, the great shepherd of the sheep. What does Jesus say? He says, other sheep have I which are not of this fold them also must I bring. How is he going to bring them? Those who are not of the house of Israel, those who are not in Samaria or in Galilee or in Judea, how are they going to be brought into the fold? Well, not by the personal ministry of Jesus Christ, but he's going to send forth laborers into his harvest. We don't have time this morning to get into every text I'd like to, but they're in the closing days of Jesus earthly ministry as he's there at Jerusalem he's talking to his disciples he tells them if I don't go away the comforter won't come But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, is going to come. He's going to lead you in the way you should go. He's going to direct you with all the answers and all the understanding that you need. And he's going to be your guide. And Jesus says, when I was here with you, you had no need. You asked me and I gave it to you. But when I go away, you'll ask the Father in my name and he'll give it to you. And the Holy Spirit is going to be with you. He's going to guide you and he's going to instruct you in all truth. Jesus is describing here a transition even in the ministry of the word. And that ties us back to our text in Ephesians. What did he say? When he had ascended up on high. That's after Jesus' earthly presence is no more. When he's ascended up on high. He led captivity captive. He gave gifts unto men. And what are the gifts? Well, the first we see are the apostles. And they're represented by these 12 or these 11. Judas fell. In Acts chapter 1 we see the church came together by the appointment of God and they elected or chose a replacement. They chose Matthias. And Matthias standing up with the eleven, there were twelve apostles. And those apostles of the Lamb proclaimed the gospel on the day of Pentecost and God did a great work, in fact arguably a greater work than what we see over the three years of Christ's ministry in terms of the gathering in of the sheep. Because... 3,000 were converted. And a short time later, 4,000 were converted. And this church in Jerusalem goes from 120 individuals to at least 7,000 and maybe more. The church grows rapidly. And the ministry of the word grows. And we see that in the early chapters of Acts because we see these 13 individuals, these 12 individuals plus one other, We see them grow, and maybe the 70 were there still originally, but we see that number grow. But it grows to the point so much that in Acts chapter 5, the apostles are so overburdened by the work of ministering to the physical needs of the church that they're forsaking the responsibility that Christ gave to them. The primary responsibility, which was the prayer and study of the word and preaching of the word, and for that reason, deacons were appointed. This is spelled out as we look in the gospel, or in the in the uh, recording of the Acts. So the apostles were doing a work. The gift of apostle is a special gift, and we don't know that much about the distinctions of it. We do know that in Matthew 16, when Jesus. Uh, inquires after what they believe of him, and Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus has this very interesting exchange with Peter where he says, I say to you, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I give to you the keys of the kingdom. He says, I'm conveying to you authority. I'm conveying to you authority to bind things on earth and they'll be recognized or bound in heaven. And he describes him as a foundational member of the New Testament church. And this is given to Peter and all of the apostles who are standing there. Jesus says, you're going to be a foundation in my church. But he doesn't say, you're going to be in charge of my church. And that's important to understand. Because the same words are used a couple of chapters later in Matthew 18. And in Matthew 18, the words are not addressed to the apostles. They're addressed to the church. Because there he says, if a brother commits an offense against you, you go to him yourself and try to resolve it. And if you're not able to, you take one or two others with you and you go and you try to resolve it. And if they refuse to hear them, then you bring it to the church. And if you bring the matter to the church and the church hears it and the church gives direction and they refuse to hear the church, then you treat them as a heathen and a public, and You withdraw from them. You exclude them from your number. And then he says, whatsoever you, the church shall bind on earth, shall be bound in heaven. So there's a distinction and yet there's a connection and that comes up importantly later. But the apostles have authority. Authority to set things in order. A divine appointment. And Jesus repeats this multiple times in in his ministry. He gives these apostles a great responsibility, a great authority. The apostles are sent of God as truly Christ's, emissaries in the first century. And the apostles establish an order in the New Testament church, but part of the order they establish is one that places them as members of the church under the authority of the church. And that's something that comes forth and needs to be seen and understood. But the apostles were a special gift, a gift given to men. A gift for the ministry of the word, for the edifying of the saints. And we see that come out when they say, Choose from among you seven men. Choose from among you men who can take care of this matter. Who can care for the physical needs. Why? So that we might give ourselves to prayer and to the word. The apostles were given to prayer and to the word. There in the Ephesian letter, the second gift he mentions is that of prophets. We don't know a lot about the gift of prophets in the New Testament, But we know a little bit. Prophets are those who are given special understanding, special discernment, or visions or ideas of the future. And it was needed for the preservation of the church. It was needed for the church to survive until it was mature, until it was established. And these prophets are not like the Old Testament prophets. The Old Testament prophets were any who were sent of God to speak, and they were sent with prophetic words that spoke of the coming of Christ and also spoke of immediate needs of Old Testament Israel. These New Testament prophets we don't have a great understanding of. But we do uh, have a little bit said about them. The... uh, Eleventh chapter of Acts, after Peter goes and preaches to Cornelius and his family, after he witnesses the work of the Holy Spirit and the presence of the Spirit in his preaching, after he declares that God has done the same work among the Gentiles that he had among the Jews, and they rejoice and the church hears and receives the work. We read in verse 27, And in these days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch, And there stood up one of them named Agabus and signified by the Spirit that there should be a great dearth throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea, which also they did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. This tells us there were multiple prophets that came up to Antioch And one of those prophets, Agabus, was given a word from God about what the future held, about future events. Why was that important? Because the brethren in Judea were in a terrible economic strait. You see, they weren't allowed to work and interact with Jewish society. They'd been cast out of the synagogues and they'd been cast out of society. And they needed to be able to live kind of on their own with the expat community of the Gentiles even to survive. And with an economic hardship coming, with a great depression looming, it was necessary that the churches of Antioch and other regions that were less Jewish in their economies provide aid and care for them. So Agabus came forth with this word. The church took up a collection and sent it by Barnabas and Saul. These prophets evidently remained there at Antioch because... Um, we immediately find in chapter 13, now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas and Simeon that was called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene and Menaean, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. And they ministered to the Lord and fasted. And the Holy Ghost said, separate me Paul and Bar- Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them and sent them away. Now this crosses over to something we want to talk about a little bit later. But there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers. So here we see two of the gifts mentioned, prophet and teachers. So in the Ephesian letter, he says he gave some apostles, he gave some prophets, he gave some evangelists. We mentioned this morning the evangelist Philip, Philip the Evangelist. Philip was one of those who was ordained a deacon in the church at Jerusalem, but by the calling of God he began preaching the gospel and he went forth from Jerusalem first to Samaria and later down into the desert to a eunuch of Ethiopia to preach. And he's described as Philip the Evangelist. Philip didn't seem to stay and minister in a church. But he was sent by God to hit those that were outside of a church. To preach the gospel. But the command to them, like the command to everyone who receives the gospel and is baptized, would have been to unite with a body of believers. To be a church. Why? Because God's called us to interact with each other and fellowship in the church. But Philip was an evangelist. There are others who we might identify and term evangelists. Evangelists were given special direction and special power, special understanding to do a work for the growth of the church of Jesus Christ. Evangelist was a gift of the Holy Spirit, a gift of God. What for? For the ministry of the word, the edification of the church of Jesus Christ. It was effectively used. So here at Antioch, there were also teachers The last gift given, arguably the most important of the gifts given, was the gift of pastors and teachers. And that brings us back to what Jesus said. What did he say? He saw the multitude and he was moved with compassion because he saw that they were a sheep having no shepherd. And the word pastor is the same with shepherd. It's one who cares for the sheep who leads them out to pleasant pastures, who gives them food and water and cares for the sheep. This word is used interchangeably in the word of God, pastors and teachers being one gift. It's used interchangeably with the word bishop. It's used interchangeably with the word elder. The elders of the churches is referring to the pastors and teachers of the churches. Now as we see the dynamic of the New Testament church structure develop, we see that there's usually a pastor in the church, that is one individual who takes the lead, who God places in that position of, of authority, where the people have his, the people's respect and listening is for him. We see that in the church at Jerusalem where James steps forth as the pastoral figure in the church at Jerusalem, with every council, with every meeting the church calls together. It's James who seems to direct the conversation and who, at the end, speaks on behalf of the church, but as Peter says in his epistle, by inspiration, let the, uh, that the elders should rule not by uh uh I'm drawing a blank. you know what I mean. Uh, not by constraint, that's right, not by constraint. We see James being one who gently leads the people of God. He's leading the people of God and the church at Jerusalem and speaking their consensus or the judgment of the church in the matter. In First Peter chapter 5, the Holy Spirit writes, The elders which are among you I exhort who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint but willingly, not for filthy lucre but of a ready mind, neither as being lords, that's what I was looking for, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. The ministry of the word as a pastor is a ministry that's rooted in the teaching of the word. The people are led by the word of God, and that's what's brought out here. He says you are to lead, you are to rule, but not as lords over God's heritage. The pastor doesn't place himself in the place of God in the church. The pastor doesn't speak as the vicar or emissary of God, so people have to do what the pastor says. That's not the idea. Not being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. That is the role of the pastor is to be an example within the flock, one who is a member of the flock. And that word example is different from example in and ex. An example is something we point to outside of us. That says this is the way it ought to be. Far too often, churches are looking for an example. They're looking to other churches to see what other congregations are doing and say, I need to be like that congregation. No, that's no excuse for our misdeeds. Well, that's what everyone else was doing as an insample to the flock. The idea is one who is within. The ministry doesn't exist apart from the church. A pastor is not someone from without, but it's from within. That is someone who is a part of a body, someone who is a member in the church. The pastor is subject to the church as a member of the church, subject to the discipline of the church, subject to the accountability structure of the church, and subject to the the scriptural instruction of his brothers and sisters in Christ. He doesn't know it all, and he doesn't claim to know it all, and he's submissive to the word of God, and that's the idea here. Not as a lord over God's heritage, but an ensample to the flock. The best way a pastor can be an ensample is to go to God's word for the answer to every question. Not to whatever seems practical or seems right, or not to the word of God as last resort, but to the word of God first and always. Not being lords over God's heritage, but being ensamples to the flock. And then Peter quickly turns by inspiration to the Lord Jesus Christ, and when the chief shepherd shall appear. You see, you're not lords over God's heritage, but you're in samples to the flock. He here invokes the idea of the people of God as sheep once again, the Lord's flock. The flock belongs to the Lord, and you're an under-shepherd at best. When the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. The role of pastor it's not it's not an honor for a man to receive it. It's not something to be attained. It's a responsibility, it's an accountability, it's a servanthood. And as a representative of the chief shepherd and under shepherd. The accountability is also described as being extremely great. But the Lord has given the church pastors and teachers, and we talked this morning at length about what those gifts are given for, to minister the word, to build up the body, to build up the church in the knowledge of Christ, to bring them to the unity of the faith and ultimately to the edification of itself. That is, that we'll live in the Word, the Word in us, so completely that we'll speak the truth to one another in love, we'll encourage one another, we'll build each other up, and we'll encourage one another in the Word of God. For these things, the gifts are given. But how do those gifts look? So the New Testament church, ultimately, after the work of the apostles in establishing the initial order, we see the apostles kind of taking a step back and submitting themselves to the rule of the church. Why? Because the church is established by God as the highest institution on earth. And the apostles, though they were the ones to whom God spoke and said, I give to you the keys of the kingdom. We see Peter going and preaching to Cornelius and doing what? Taking witnesses from the church and coming to the church and giving an account of his work and the church endorsing his work. And Peter doesn't come and slap them down and say, I'm an apostle of the Lamb, I was sin of God, and this work is good. No, he tells them what happened. And he says, the Holy Ghost fell upon them the same way he did on us. And the church heard the word, and the church received it, the church endorsed it. We see Paul and Barnabas. As God sent them forth, and they are called apostles in one place. Regardless, they were sent of God, whether you want to think of them as evangelists or apostles or prophets. But they went forth and they preached the gospel to the Gentiles round about Asia. And they came back to Antioch, and what did they do? They reported to the church at Antioch. They accounted for their work. They told them what they had done. And the church received and endorsed the work. Now, Paul could have said... God called me by divine appointment. He struck me off of my donkey into the dust. He told me I've called you to be a light to the Gentiles, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, and gone forth and done the work. But no, he couldn't. Why? Because God had placed him in the New Testament church. He was accountable to the church. We just looked at how in the church at Antioch there were elders and there were prophets. And they prayed and they fasted. And in prayer and fasting, God gave them a response. And God said, set apart Paul and Barnabas for the work to which I have sent them. You see, God is directing the work of the ministry. He's directing the New Testament church. And we see how he does it there through prayer and through fasting. Fasting and prayer is real and it works and it matters. And God has appointed it in his church. And he gives the solution to problems that to us seem to be unsolvable. And sometimes he does the unthinkable. They weren't thinking about the Gentiles in Asia when they were going to God in prayer and fasting. They were seeking direction. They were seeking wisdom, his presence among them. And the answer was, send these men to the work to which I have called them. (coughs) And that gives us a lens into the way the New Testament church is supposed to operate by trusting the leading of the Holy Spirit congregationally and setting apart those whom the Holy Spirit sets forth among them to the work to which he has called them. And it's important for us to understand and see the calling of God in every minister that we see rise up. As Paul and Barnabas began to preach the gospel and travel around and about Asia, They encountered many, and they established churches in every community in every city. And then, as they came into a particular place in their ministry, they encountered a young man who was the son of a Jewess there, and the son of a... Unbelieving Gentile father, and the young man had been instructed in the word. And Paul thought it good to call for that individual, whose name was Timotheus, to journey with them, to journey with them and engage with them in ministry. And this was the Lord calling and the Lord showing us a pattern of mentoring, where Paul mentored Timothy and brought him up in the ministry, and we're blessed to see that through the epistle to Timothy, how that that work continued and it grew. Other examples are found in the scripture, where the apostles, having been once through the area and having constituted these churches in every city, they defended their work and then they went forth to preach again. They went forth again to declare the gospel, but also to establish the churches more firmly upon the truth and to ordain elders in every city. In Acts chapter 16 we read, this is the second missionary journey, Then came he to Derbe and Lystra. And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timotheus, the son of a certain woman which was a Jewish and believed, but his father was a Greek which was well reported of by brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. Him would Paul have to go forth with him and took and circumcised him because of the Jews which were in those quarters, for they, all, they knew all that his father was a Greek. And they went through the cities. They delivered them the decrees for to keep that were ordained of the apostles and elders which were at Jerusalem, and so, the, and so were the churches established in the faith and increased in number daily. So they're going forth and they're preaching and they're teaching and they're establishing men on the faith and they're ordaining elders in every city. That expression, ordaining elders in every city, the very word ordain means essentially to elect or to choose. And the elders in the churches were chosen by the churches, but they were chosen based on certain criteria. And we see that as Paul speaks to the young minister Timothy and also Titus. He sent Titus to ordain elders, to ordain elders, to establish elders in the churches of the region of Crete. Well, how was this done? Well, there were qualifications, there were certain standards that had to be met. A man to fill this office of elder had to fill the qualifications that Paul lays out for Timothy. And those qualifications include a calling from God and also an ability, and also a standard to be an example to the church. They had to be what they were called to be, but they had to have the calling. They had to have a desire as well. So 1 Timothy deals with this subject, and we'll break it down just a little bit. He begins the letter by making reference to the person of Timothy, talking about the gospel that Timothy had received, and talking about the the glorious blessing it was to understand and to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 3, he says, This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, or of an elder, or of a pastor, he desireth a good work. A bishop, then, must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach." Not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous. One that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest, being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil." These are the qualifications the church is to look for in the ministry. And these are the qualifications the man who desires to be a minister by divine appointment must strive to live up to. And these qualifications can be daunting. They can be imposing. They can seem impossible when we start breaking them down. God qualifies those whom he calls. And the church has the wisdom, the judgment, the discernment given by God and the selecting Of the ministers. Yet it's important also to understand the pattern of Scripture is that there's a check and a balance even on the church's authority in this. Because the elders of the church are given the authority and responsibility of laying hands and appointing and ordaining these individuals. And there's a reason for that as well. Because this man must be apt to teach, this man must be sound in the doctrine, and this man must be equipped of God to the calling. We see this in Paul's choosing of Timothy and taking him with him. We see this in the fact that he commits these qualifications and the teaching of them not to a general epistle to a church, but to a minister sent of God for the purpose of establishing the church. It's also important to note that he speaks of elders in every city. A healthy church is a church where the ministry of God is a plurality rather than a singularity. There may be one pastor, but there should be elders in a healthy and a strong church. Why is that? Because Jesus Christ has given gifts unto men, plural, and these gifts are for the ministry of the word. And it causes us to wonder when we see such a lack of the ministry of the word in the day in which we live. It's not good. And it's not about this church or some other church in particular. It's the world over. The churches of Jesus Christ have a shortage of ministry. And we have to wonder why. Is it that God doesn't desire his word to be preached? Certainly not. Is it that Jesus Christ is not calling? Perhaps, but I doubt it. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. I'm afraid not many today desire a good work. And not many today desire to do the Lord's work. And we have to ask and wonder why. Jesus Christ looked out and saw a multitude and was moved with compassion. Jesus Christ looked out and said the fields are white unto harvest. Pray ye the Lord of the harvest that he'll send laborers into his harvest. Could it be that we're not praying to the Lord of the harvest for laborers? Could it be that we don't see that the fields are white unto harvest? Could it be that we're so focused on other problems that we're not seeking the solution? which is that the Lord of the harvest would send forth laborers into his harvest. And could it be that we get so caught up on questions about how the church should function, how the church should operate, about the offices of the church, that we forget to keep the main thing the main thing. And what's the main thing? It's Jesus Christ and knowing him and his gospel. It's the ministry of the word. And brethren and sisters, we need to be praying. We need to unite in prayer that God would send forth laborers into his harvest. That he would convict young men among us. That the most important thing that you can do is give yourself to the word and pray for the Lord's direction. And pray that the Lord would raise up laborers and if it's not you, that it would be someone else nearby. That it would be someone who would commit themselves to the word. To being established in this truth. And to these qualifications here that are laid out. Vigilant. Sober. Of good behavior. Given to hospitality. Apt to teach. There's so many times in the church of Jesus Christ. That we take something the scripture says. And we alter it to fit what we prefer. I want to serve God. But. I don't want to stand in front of people. I don't want to speak the word publicly. I don't want to be the focus of attention. We even use a false form of humility to say, I'm not going to get up there and speak. And we don't do the work God's called us to. And similarly, within the church, within the ministry, there's been a great fault of pride and desire for control. The Holy Spirit writes to Timothy and says, the elders that rule well are worthy of double honor. But you know what that presupposes? There are elders who don't rule well. Something to think about. John the Apostle ran into that at the church at Ephesus. He writes in his third epistle of a church that has been led astray by a pastor who will brook no opposition. He writes of diatrophies, which desireth to have the preeminence among you. The best way to know that a man is not a man of God is if he's desiring the preeminence, if he wants to be first. If the conversation is always about him if he's giving directions to the church rather than leading the church and allowing the church to direct according to God's word. If he's placing himself between the church and their savior, then he's no man of God. And that's how Diotrephes had established himself in the church. So John writes an epistle to the church as the last remaining apostle, an apostle who has subjected himself to the rule of the church, but he hasn't foregone his authority, his power. His dignity as a man of God. But the aged John writes as the elder to the well beloved Gaius, a member of this church, whom I love in the truth. I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. John is still committed to the ministry of the word, to the edifying of the saints. He wants this individual to be strengthened, to be edified that he might prosper, that his soul might prosper. I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. That, my friends, is the heart of a minister of the gospel. And that's the heart of any true believer. No greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. The minister wants the people to walk in truth. That's what his life is for. That's what his work is. That's the Apostle John. He says, you're doing good when you care for brethren and strangers and you've done that work. Bringing them forward on their journey after a godly sort. Because that for his namesake they went forth taking nothing of the Gentiles. What does a minister do? He doesn't serve greedy for filthy lucre. He goes forth taking nothing of those to whom he ministers. He goes forth taking nothing of the Gentiles. We ought to receive such that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. And then he gets to the point. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes who loveth to have the preeminence among them receiveth us not. Wherefore, if I come, I'll remember his deeds which he doeth, prating against us with malicious words, and not content therewith. Neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church. So John does invoke a little bit of his authority here. He says, when I come, if I come, I'm not going to forget what this man has done, and I'm going to put him in his place. But if that were all, John wouldn't be writing the letter. He would just be coming and doing it. He's writing the letter to the church, to members of the church. And what's he saying? He's saying, your pastor is a problem. He's a problem because he wants the preeminence. He wants to be first. There's no humility there. (coughs) Because of that pride and that lack of humility, because of his love to have the preeminence, he won't receive us. He's rejecting the true minister of the gospel, the true word of God. He's rejecting an apostle of the Lamb. And not only that, he's doing evil deeds. He's speaking against the men of God. And not content therewith, he won't receive the brethren. These same brethren, he says, you do well if you receive them, if you bring them on their way. Diotrephes is closing the doors. He wants to be the only minister, the only one with the voice, the only one to speak. He's building a cult here in the church of Jesus Christ. Neither doth he himself receive the brethren and forbiddeth them that would. doesn't want anyone else to receive a word from outside. He's locking things down so he can have control and casteth them out of the church. There is nowhere in Scripture that the minister of the gospel is given the authority to cast anyone out of the church or to receive anyone into the church. In fact, the Apostle Paul, when he writes to the church at Corinth that he had newly established and he had been the founding minister of, he writes to them and tells them, there is sin in your midst that the Gentiles would even be ashamed to countenance and you've done nothing about it. And the Lord's Supper is being abused and for that cause people are suffering and people are dying and you're doing nothing about it. But Paul doesn't say, this young man who has his father's wife, I'm casting him out of the church. He doesn't do that. He writes to the church and he says, you have a responsibility to this man and to the Lord. And you ought to, when you come together, cast him out so the judgment of Christ will fall upon him directly. And the church will be preserved from the judgment that will fall upon you if you don't. The minister of the gospel has no right to cast anyone out of the church. And the minister of the gospel cannot unilaterally receive anyone into the church. The church acts on the church's behalf, and that's established throughout the scripture. But Diotrephes, he casts them out of the church if they would receive those from outside if another voice is brought into the congregation. Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God, but he that doeth evil hath not seen God. And then he says, Demetrius hath good report of all men. What's the qualification of the ministry? Blameless. Have a good report of all men. What John is doing here is saying there's one in your midst who is qualified to be your pastor and you need, to throw, you need to throw diatrophies out on his ear. And you need to call this man Demetrius because he's a good man. He's a man of God. Demetrius had good report of all men and of the truth itself. Yea, and we also bear record and ye know our record is true. And that's it. What's the message of this epistle? The message of the epistle is this. You've got some good people among you. There are some good things in your church. But your pastor is no man of God. Your pastor is the problem. And you as the church have the authority. There's one among you that is a better leader, a better shepherd. And he says, I have nothing more to say to you. I have a lot more, but there's not time. I'm not going to write it. That's the message I wanted to convey. Get rid of diatrophies and call a man who's worthy of the calling. The reason I I come to this verse is because it tells us a lot about the responsibility and authority of the church. It tells us a lot about what it is to select and to call a pastor. And the apostle places it on the church. How do we identify, how do we mentor, how do we grow and select these gifts? And how do we understand what it is in the church of Jesus Christ to be a church of Jesus Christ? The role of a pastor is an important role. The role of elders is an important role. The church needs the ministry of the word or else... Everything else becomes meaningless. God is gracious to give gifts unto men. That gift was secured when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and it's secured in the promise, Lo, I am with you all the way, even to the end of the world. You are a church of Jesus Christ today, and Christ's presence is here among you. I know it. I felt it. I've experienced it. The Word of God is preached here, and the Word of God is loved here. Pray, pray the Lord of the harvest. He would send forth laborers into his harvest. And continue to receive those, to receive those who go forth preaching his word, carrying forth his word. Receive the word, receive the word gladly. And search the scriptures, whether these things are so, that's the way we're to receive the preaching. But if the word of Christ is proclaimed, the elders of the church will speak the word in truth, in love, in clarity. Then Jesus Christ will be magnified. He'll be magnified in you, his church. And his name will go forth from this place. That's my prayer for, for this body is... I love you all so dearly, and as I contemplate the future for this congregation, my desire is that you would unite in prayer and fasting. Go to the Lord and seek his direction and seek his wisdom, and he's placed in your midst those who have great wisdom in the word, who love the Lord and love his people. And there are some of you who are young and trying to seek direction and wisdom and know what the Lord has for you. And my prayer is that God would call you and direct you and raise you up and give you the courage to speak, that his work here would be promoted and that you would unite in prayer for God to show you the way and whether that be to bring a man from outside or a man from within, that he would lead you as a congregation to fit this pattern of a New Testament church, not because you're trying to emulate something on the outside, but because you're trying to embody his word in your midst. That's my prayer. That's my desire. I pray the Lord would use these words and would bless us all through them. And uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Almighty Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. Father, I thank you for Grace Community Church and for each member here and each of those who come together and meet Sunday in and Sunday out. And Father, I ask that your word spoken here would produce fruit in each heart and each life, and Father, that each one would be be built up and edified and strengthened and brought to the measure of the stature of the fullness of your Son Jesus Christ. Father, that we would live our lives for his glory and Father, that we would honor you in our words and our deeds. Father, I ask that you would bring up in this church and Uh, This very place, men who would preach the gospel, who would love your word, who would imbibe your word, and Father, live in your word, and Father, that you would establish them upon truth and the foundational truths of your sovereignty, of your holiness, and of your gospel, that you would cause them to, to just burst forth preaching and speaking words of truth. Father, that you would allow the communion of the saints here in this place to be a communion built and founded in your word. And, Father, that they would speak the truth to one another and this body would continue to edify itself in love. Father, I thank you for the work that you've done here and that you've continued so many years. I thank you for the labor of those who have gone before in the ministry and those who have gone before in the body. And, Father, I ask that you would just continue that work and that you would cause uh, ca- cause a work to be done here that we wouldn't believe, though, though someone might tell us of it. Father, we thank you for the gifts that you've given to your church, to your people, for the ministry of the word, the diversity of gifts, Father, the different personalities, the different classes, ethnicities, and cultures of men that you call to preach Father, that their word that they speak is the same word, the word of God given to us in your word, the Bible. And Father, we give you praise, we give you thanks. We ask that you be with all those who are not able to be here with us this day and that you would return them safely to us. And Father, that you would strengthen and grow this congregation, that they might be what you've called them to be. And Father, that your name would be magnified in all. We give you praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.